So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. I'm Ollie Man, and this is the Modern Man. We bring you ideas, stories, trends, sex advice, and music. It's 2024. Here's what we've got coming up for you today. We thought that bending spoons and veganism combined just sounds even weirder, so we decided not to really promote that. Signing up influencers, taking on the meat lobby, and winding up Piers Morgan. I meet the British couple who created Veganuary. Plus, I so often say that sweeping topics under the carpet just makes lumps for you to trip over later, and I think that this is one of those lumpy topics here. Alex Fox has advice for parenting a trans teenager, and Ollie Peart sobers up. That's all to come on this edition of the Modern Man. But first, your letters, and thank you so much, everybody who's taken to social media in the past week or two to share our episode about the post office scandal from October. It's been really satisfying. Uh, I mean, of course, it sort of goes without saying, but it's been really satisfying for all the victims of the IT Horizon debacle to finally have their moment in the sun, literally in the mainstream media, <laughs> in the sun. Uh, thanks to the ITV drama that's been on about it in the past few weeks. I mean, there are now questions in Parliament. It is now a pressing issue, um, and you know we've been uh, campaigning on it since 2020. But for us, for our little podcast, it's just been nice to have some validation from you that you heard it here first. So many of you took to social media and told the world or replied to prominent public figures who were writing about the post office scandal. Oh, I heard this first at The Modern Man or I heard this at Ollie Man's show. So thank you. It is never too late to tell your friends about this show. Please do. You know, we don't have any advertising budget. We only rely on your word of mouth. Our podcast is only monthly. We have a policy of not interviewing celebrities. So we've made a bit of a rod for our own backs in terms of cut through. So if you do hear something here and you do think we deserve recognition for having done it, do tell people. Tell people we exist. Uh, We are at The Modern Man on X. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or both. Why not do both? Um, And I suppose on the flip side of that, actually, hello to everybody who's now found the show because of uh, the traction that we've had over the post office scandal. Welcome. Uh, I think you're going to find lots of things in our back catalogue to enjoy. A couple of bits of feedback then. Uh, Katie McMahon says, Ollie, I've listened for years. I finally plucked up the courage to contact you to share my gratitude for shining a light on the struggles within the police. Uh, Now, this is in response to our episode from November, Hearts and Minds. Uh, She says, we get a harsh rap in the police, but no one knows the trauma we face in addition to ordinary life ebb and flows. I'm a single mum and a serving officer for nearly 16 years. I've seen the worst of society and I've lived others' worst moments while burying my own. I work in a specialist department where only now are we finally receiving acknowledgement for the trauma we face. The struggle is real. We hide it at our own fate. I've always been a tactile person. I love a hug, but this is a no-go area in the current climate of policing. I hope listeners take something from your brilliant chat with Kaz and can see some positive from those of us who are doing a job others wouldn't for those who need us the most. Uh, Katie, thank you. What a brilliant email because... Uh, you know, inevitably on this kind of show, when we're talking about people's extraordinary experiences, then very often 
we cover the police in the context of miscarriages of justice or racism or heavy-handedness. But of course, you know, you hope that's a story because it's not representative of all the police. And it was nice to make an episode there where we did talk about the things that you guys do that most of us wouldn't or couldn't. Um, so thank you for being in touch. Thank you for doing what you do. Uh, regarding Ollie's skillathon as well, uh, Julian Shortman has been in touch. He says, um, to add to your discussions about worthwhile charities, may I recommend listeners check out some of the excellent microfinance charities out there. Individuals living in poverty often have difficulty securing loans from traditional financial institutions due to a lack of borrowing history and assets to use as collateral. And even when they can get loans, interest rates are high. So people often use microloans to finance small businesses in their early stages, enabling people to overcome barriers and progress towards lifting themselves and their families out of poverty. I have been a member of one microloan charity, Kiva, for over a decade and would highly recommend it. Uh, Julian, thank you for that. We, we didn't get around to talking about microfinance charities last month because uh, we were too busy playing stupid games involving rubber chickens and condoms, um, it being the Christmas special. Uh, but that is a worthwhile contribution to what we were discussing. I suppose I should add, it's not my financial advice, though. That is your experience. Uh, sticking with finance, however... Thank you, everybody, as well, who has contributed beer money recently. Um, since I last listed people on air, we have welcomed to the fold new monthly beer money subscribers, Andrew Bernard, Lee Moody and Timothy Trick. Thank you. Uh, and these are the people who have upgraded to the new beer money amount of £4.57. So they were beer money contributors. They then emailed me and asked me to please deduct more money each month from their credit cards. Amazing people. <laughs> they are Yumiko Kajiwara, Caroline Key, Tim Parsons, Chris Hines, Adam Kiziak, and TJ at the Channel 84 Variety Show podcast, who says, Ollie, I've followed your show since the very beginning, and I finally have a little bit of extra cash I can put into beer money for you all. I've loved every episode, and it's pushed my co-host and I to start our own podcast. We can't thank you enough. There's really no need for more thanks, TJ. Your money is good. Um, I can't speak for your show yet. I haven't heard it yet, but I will get around to it eventually. Persist regardless would be my advice. Come back to me nine years in. Uh, we've also had a one-off donation from Matthew Botting, Jesse Pickwode, Martin Jansen, and from Dale, our ambassador for Dusseldorf from 2018, 20 euros. Thank you, Dale. Uh, it is genuinely you guys who keep the show going. We're an independent podcast. It costs money to make this show, as you can hopefully hear. Um, so if in real life... Were you to meet me, you'd put your hand in your pocket and buy me a beer to say thank you. Then just do it virtually. It means the same. One pint of beer per month, preferably. But, you know, as you've heard, the payment form is completely flexible. It's also completely secure. You choose how much and how often. Just head to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click beer money. Thank you. Right, on today's show, you will learn... When to spend an evening watching Google Analytics, you will learn how a new drug could stimulate male breastfeeding, and you'll learn why McDonald's, KFC and Unilever are not the enemy. Let's go. It's time for the Zeitgeist, your trends tested with Ollie Peart. Hello. Hi, Ollie. How Happy are you? New Year. Happy New Year to you. Is it too late to say that? I feel it's fine at this stage of the month. Yeah, I mean, it's... January? Can't you say it throughout the whole of January? It's the first time I've seen you since right. 
last year. Exactly. So. I, I seem to recall there's like a whole Curb Your Enthusiasm about this, and I can't remember where the Larry David verdict was. But anyway, oh. I feel like 10th of January is reasonable, so Happy yeah. New Year. Happy New Year. How's the Discord been going? Because you launched the Mon Man Discord on the I last did. episode. Yes, we got a few more members, Okay, which is great. We've had a few more people submit their skills and needs, but we're not getting enough matches at the moment. There's not enough people in there to get the matches. Mm. So I want to encourage people to go along and and do that. But also, it seems to be there's one user called Goldie on there who's uh. starting to he, who wants to fire up conversations about the podcast. Not interested in the skillathon. So go there. It's a new place where you can meet other man fans, just not me yet. Yeah. Do you know what? I feel like the responsibility of it, like if I turn up, I mean I know I can lurk. If I turn up, then obviously this being my show, people might want to hear from me and I'm just not ready to perform on another I social think, media space. I think I should be on there. Yeah. Maybe Alex. You just stay away. Just lord and it. And then people can just... They can slag me off. Yeah, yeah. You can mount we... a coup is what you could do. You could get together <laughs> our biggest fan yeah. and the two co-presenters and just be like, we don't need that. Yeah, no. maybe. <laughs> but we could all, we could just filter the feedback and then... You know, I'll just give you the good stuff. So what skills and needs are there that are out there on the moment? So we've got We Care UK, which is a charity. They need help uh, to increase their online presence. Uh And uh, Eyeball Wizard uh, has posted the need to uh, get some help to publish a children's book. And remind people how they find it. If you go to modernman.co.uk, right now, there's a banner at the top of the page. You can just click that. Uh, Alternatively, you can just go to Discord and you can search The Modern Man. As we sit here face-to-face for this recording, Mm. there are one, two, three, four, five bottles of what look like booze in front of me. And so there's a part, a latent part of my brain that's just like, oh, going to drink that. Yeah. But of course, it's alcohol-free booze. Yes, it is. Um, Because James in Morton in Marsh has challenged you to test out the best alcohol-free beverages and maybe make one of your own for dry January. January. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk about it as a trend, kind of booze-free. Yeah. How big is it now? There was actually a UCOV survey which was conducted this year, and it found that 44% of drinkers aged between 18 and 24 are regularly opting for low or non-alcoholic j- drinks. That's up from 31% in 2022. 44% of drinkers, so people who do drink booze as well, are just yep. sometimes choosing not to. Exactly. And within that group, 39% are not drinking at all. So they're opting just go completely sober the whole time. Within the consumption of sort of like alcoholic drinks, the non-alcoholic sector is still tiny. Is it? Yeah. It is like one and a half percent. I mean, there are a lot of pissheads out there. Yeah, exactly. One and a half percent. And out of that, it's like over 50%, 54% of beers. That's interesting, isn't it? Because just anecdotally, or just, well, actually just going to the supermarket, you can see that that segment of zero alcohol is slowly taking over mm. The alcohol aisle, right? I mean, it's it's a lot more than 1%. It's like probably 20% of the Tesco booze aisle is now alcohol-free. My local Waitrose, they put the alcohol-free beers in the fridge, yeah. but the alcohol beers are not in the fridge. That's annoying. It's more of a Waitrose look, though, isn't it, to take an alcohol-free beer out the fridge and drink it as you walk around the supermarket <laughs> rather, than, rather than a carling. Or their carling is delicious. Are you a carling drinker? Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah. That yeah, just, I mean, it was the first name that I reached to to be, like, typical mm. of the sort of mass-produced 
lagery pap that was the thing when we were teenagers. Carling, absolutely fine. People slag it off, it's fine. Yes, it's watery, but it's it's not very strong. I love also, how Ollie has innovated this lot also, to be something totally different. Ollie Pitt judges <laughs> mainstream lager brands. No, I am, mainstream lager brands. Yeah, what do you think of Heineken? Also, John Smith's and Tetley's <laughs> Alberton. I'm sorry, you can't get much better than that. The little right. widget in it? Yeah. Delicious. Next month, Peroni. <laughs> um, no, it's only if you've got brown shoes with jeans. Let's steer back. I am wearing brown jeans and, well, she knows actually right now. Let's steer back to the conversation at hand. Yep. So booze free then. Mm-hmm. It was the case that it was literally like Beck's Blue, right? Yeah, when, yeah, in yeah. fact, when my wife was pregnant, it was only 2016, when she was pregnant the first time and I tried to support her through sympathy, it didn't last very long, but I tried. Um, I went alcohol free and the only choice in my local supermarket was Beck's Blue. Yeah. Now there's the Corona one. There's loads of them. Um, but what you've got on the table here are not brands that I recognise. I've got no beers for you to taste today. Okay. These, because one of the fastest growing parts of, of the industry is spirits. And that is being fueled by them acting as a base for cocktails. So it is literally replacing the whiskey and the vodka and yeah. all those kinds of things with a non-alcoholic alternative. Uh, gin is a is a really popular one. So it's a growing part. It's still very small, even in the non-alcoholic side. The spirits makes up like less than ten percent. So if you're doing like a zero alcohol G and T, yeah, can't you just get a flavored tonic and that doesn't that taste the? I mean, it's the it's the alcohol hit from the gin usually that I'm getting if you've got a flavored tonic. Well, it's anyway. all the botanicals and that kind of thing and the way that's distilled. You know, to get all of those flavors, they're trying to replicate it as close as possible without that without the alcohol, basically. That's kind of the plan. But the other thing that is happening, which is really interesting when I was looking into this, is that at the moment in the UK, non-alcoholic drinks means that your drink is uh, 0.05%. So it's very, very low. Yeah. In other parts of the world, that's different. It's half a percent. And the UK are considering on changing that law. And what the drinks industry think that will mean is that we'll start to see more exciting, uh, sort of low alcohol, if you like, non-alcoholic drinks come onto the market because it actually allows a little bit more flexibility in the brewing process. Although then if you've given up booze because you have an issue with alcohol or you're trying to, you know, control your dependency, then you really do want a zero alcohol beer, don't you? You don't want one with like half a percent in it. These 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 drinks really are for people that want to perhaps lower their intake of alcohol, you know, just be a little bit more healthier. Like I would occasionally opt for a non-alcoholic beer even though later on in the night I might have a normal So I've done this too, and I worry calorifically actually about that because there's a a health virtue associated Mm. with opening a non-alcoholic beer, isn't there? But it's still full of calories and sugar and all the other stuff. Yeah, but it's considerably less. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Because I've done that thing of like, you know when you're like, I've got a bit of work to do, I don't want to be smashed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's 8pm and I've put the kids to bed, so I'm going to have a beer. Zero alcohol beer first, hour of work. Then it's party time. Yeah. And I think, well, actually, what I've done is I've had three drinks when I would have had two. Yeah. It's like having a Diet Coke with half a Coke in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that equivalent, isn't it? But but a lot of people do do that. I mean, I've, I I've been to Cafe Nero and ordered, because their coffee's very strong, one shot real Americano, one, one shot decaf. That is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's unique, and I'm a beautiful snowflake. <laughs> uh, let's open one of these zero alcohol, uh, what are they, spirits? Well then, I'm going to start you off not on a spirit, but on a wine. Right. And this one is um, unique. <laughs> You're <inviting> Matt Berry. <laughs> well, this one is unique because they come in these little tiny bottles. That's smaller than you'd get even on an aeroplane. That's like a Harry Hill comedy prop tiny bottle. Yeah. yeah. And the reason being, it's a cordial. Right, yes. So um, you can get a pack of nine of these for 35 quid. Okay, what are they? they, 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 they call it says Jukes. Jukes. Yes. One, this is. 
Duke's One. Sounds like a public school nickname for someone, doesn't it? Perhaps. Uh, the company was set up by a chap called Matthew Dukes, who is a globally recognised professional wine taster. He's got 40 years worth of experience, so he knows what he's talking about with wine. And he loves his wine, yeah. but he wanted to create a viable non-alcoholic alternative. But you said cordial, so you have to mix it with water. Yes, well, they do. This is a version. Like Jesus to make wine. <laughs> it's, that, it's a version <laughs> of that. So, what you do, you can mix it with sparkling water or just normal water. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you do half a bottle for a glass, roughly, but you can mix to your taste. You see, Ollie, this is the, this is the key here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a sparkling one because I don't have any plain water here. That's the only reason. That's what all the sommeliers say, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you just fake it? Write it out. Say that it's the best combination. Oh, it's gone everywhere. I mean, you're an embarrassment. I'm glad that we're not in a classy establishment doing this. Right, here, here we go. Roughly half again, I think. It's about that. Blimey, that's a strong smell. I'm not sure. I think I'd dilute more, wanna, frankly. Okay, a bit more yeah. water in there. Okay. It's, just, got a, it's got a kombucha-ish kind of fermented smell to it. Yeah, yeah. Which is not what I want from a glass of wine. Is it supposed to be wine? What's it supposed to be? Yes, it's supposed to be. So this is their classic white, they call this. Okay, um, so I'm thinking, this does this taste like sparkling white wine, right? It should taste like, you should get uh, the taste of plum in here, you should get tart apples, pineapple as well, a little bit there. Uh, and you should get a long, tart, lemon zest-tinged finish. Okay, yeah, well those are polite words, those last words for the kind of smell that it has. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pour myself one as well. Remind. It does taste a bit like fizzy kombucha. I'm sorry, that's what it tastes like. Like, not bad in a bad way, but mm-hmm. if you told me... I mean, it doesn't taste like booze. Yeah, fizzy kombucha. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good description. Nice. Which is nice, but it's not wine. Well... Fail. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jukes, with your decades of experience well, we got, in wine. Well, we got another one from Jukes, so it might be that it's my poor mixing that's creating that. Maybe that. Maybe that's the problem. They do pre-mixed drinks, so this is Jukes 6. Okay. Um, in a can. This is in a can to pre-mix, so pre-mixed. Mr. Jukes has approved this taste. You see lots of people drinking these on trains, commuter trains. That's what you. That, that's what I'm guessing they want to see, but mostly it's just Gordon's, isn't it? Mm, that's right, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> oh, no, don't put your lips around the can. We're no, going to share it. Sorry, sorry. I had Have to you had do COVID that. this Christmas? Uh, uh, no, I haven't had COVID this Christmas. I did that, like any true sommelier <laughs> would, because I didn't want to get it on the floor. <laughs> Have you never been to a posh restaurant, Ollie? That's what they do. <laughs> You know, these these high-class no, types, that's what they do. It was They're the weird. instinctive reaction. It's like that thing of, like, you drop your keys and you slam your legs together to catch it. It was that, wasn't it? It was no thought. It was just yeah. like, that's a man who's experienced opening cans on a moving vehicle. Well, it's not... <laughs> like I said, I drink John Smith's and Tetley's. Yeah. And they go all over the place. Right. Right. Well, so this is the number six. What's this oh, supposed to God. be? This is their sparkling red wine. It's not a thing that I drink. No. <laughs> it's a thing that many people drink. That's a nice noise. It's got it's, it's a nice noise, isn't it? Yeah. Now it looks much, much richer in colour. I might burp on mic. I can feel the previous one still bubbling up in my in it's my okay. tummy. You burp away, Ollie. Well, you say it's okay. I'm warning the listeners yeah. who have me in their ears at the oh, moment. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Right. Sparkling red. Sparkling red. Cheers. Chin chin. Now you should be getting black currant, black breeze yes. in this one. I'd call it Ribena. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm getting black currant. It's it's posh Ribena, isn't it? <laughs> Raspberries, strawberries, plums. You getting that in there? Does it taste like red wine, sparkling red wine to you? Well, look, I'm not a drinker of sparkling red wine. That's not a thing you get in this country. I quite like sangria. Yeah. You could, you could, you could imagine this, couldn't you, on a sunny day with a slice of orange in it, and it would feel like you're drinking sangria. Well, this is the nice thing, isn't it, about um, non-alcoholic drinks? I could imagine this at ten o'clock on a sunny morning. We should be at a barbecue drinking that or a picnic. 
But you, it would be nicer than having the Ribena with some sparkling water mixed in it, wouldn't it? It's got a slightly more sophisticated palate than that. Well, that's the other side of it, isn't it? If if other people are drinking around you and you want to pour that into a, yeah. a wine glass, you're going to feel more part of the occasion. Agree. Okay, so next up, I have got another... This is another sparkling wine. Yeah. Now... They only sent me one bottle of this, so I haven't tried it yet. So we're oh. going to both be tasting this okay. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, a, yeah, a sparkling wine. It's called Muri. It's from Copenhagen. It's Danish. It's You're gonna... terrible, Muri. Okay. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great film. Yeah. It's going to set you back 20 quid. This one is called Sherbet 20 Daydream. quid? 20 quid, yeah. I mean, that just before you open it, can I just, on that, because yeah, like my favourite gin is Tanqueray, okay. and they do a summery one, which I really like. Mm. The non-alcoholic one costs the same, costs the same as, or it might be two pounds less mm. than the one with booze in it. That's a racket, isn't it? Well, I that's think... That's a racket. <clears throat> well, the process of making it is still going to be expensive, isn't it? I suppose that's their argument. Like decaf coffee, that's their argument, isn't it? We're doing everything the same, it just hasn't got booze in it. I suppose... But crucially, it hasn't got booze in it. Like, it is just a cordial. Which anyway, means it's not on. being taxed the same, so actually it should be cheap. Exactly. Yes, that is a good point. Anyway. Right, here we go. Oh, that's pretty anticlimactic, wasn't it? I mean, it's not a champagne-popping moment. I don't think it's supposed to be, necessarily. Good. Maybe. Now, what was nice about that, genuinely, because mm. I'm pouring it from a proper-sized wine bottle, yes. and there's the fizz. Yes. There was that kind of sense of occasion it was festive yes yeah. it was because the only other thing like this is schlur all right let's try it oh it smells much better than that duke's one i'll be honest mm. oh that's quite nice yeah and the i'll tell you what the fizz that's in this feels like natural fizz i don't know anything about how they've managed to manufacture it but it, whereas the last one felt like it had been pumped with carbonated stuff yeah this one tastes like champagne having natural fizz like that no that's really lovely actually isn't yeah it? i quite yeah, like it yeah. and and Although it hasn't got the, sort of the alcohol, there is like a... It's got a savoury taste. Yeah. It would well, pair nicely with some olives or some Mediterranean <laughs> crackers. Well, this is a blend of uh, red currant wine, pickled rhubarb, Douglas fir and juniper berry. Douglas fir? Wasn't he a TV star from the 90s? He may well have been. <laughs> I actually do like that, yes. Oh. Murie, well done. Murie. So they've got a bunch in their range. I've only got this one. So that one's called Sherbet Daydream, if you're interested. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd drink that. So, that was the wine and the sparkling wines. Now, we're on to the spirit alternatives. Yes. So these are the spirits. Now, uh, I reached out to a company that's based in the UK called um, Three Spirit. I was chatting to their founder, a guy called Thomasin, who was chatting to me about all kinds of uh, things that they create. And he said, look, I'm going to send you these three spirits. Give them a bash. Here's how you drink them. The first one will arrive at midnight. <laughs> He will be the dead business partner you used to work with. Well, look, the first one we're going to try is called Leivner. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to be drunk like a shot. Oy. Let's! That's the best I can do. Yeah. So this is your non-alcoholic version of Aftershock. <laughs> people okay. still drink that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yes. Well, probably the same people that drank it in the noughties, I'm guessing. Do you know what I mean? I doubt it's people of their age replenishing the market. Come in nice bottles again. They do, yes. Yeah, that feels a, very proper. It's sophisticated, isn't it? Isn't it interesting what a difference the bottle does make, actually? There you go, a little shot there for you. Mm. Okay, so this, again, has a Ribena-like appearance, let's be <laughs> honest. Yeah. Uh, it just looks like a cordial, but a bit muddier, a bit murkier than that. So the smell is a bit... You know when Mexicans put like lime and salt and chili into their beer, like that kind of smell. Like <laughs> All a, Mexicans. A bit... <laughs> no, but that's a thing in Mexico. Yeah, okay, okay. 
yeah. Well, if I told you what that main smell is, you'd be like, oh, yeah, of course it is. Okay. Uh, d- don't. Let me guess. I won't. The overwhelming smell in that. I can't guess. I can't guess. Beetroot. Oh, yeah, it's that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you got, we've got to neck it as a shot. Three, Three two, two, one. one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit like kind of... Um, Oh, no, it's got an aftertaste. It's, okay, so yeah. initially, I was about to say, it's like a spatcho. That's what it tastes mm. like. Just like almost like a tomato soup. Because that, that's the beetroot, isn't it? But then there's it, it, there's something over the top which comes back at you, mm. like a like a real spirit, isn't it? It lingers in you. I can still taste it. Yeah, it's quite. Yeah. It's still fizzing on my tongue. Yeah, so Thomasin uh, said that he tries to get these sort of these bold flavours in to sort of, you know, yeah, try and replicate that alcohol. Mm. So the burn you get from a spirit. Yes, right? it is that, isn't it's it? It's kind of a bit That's like what that. it is. It's like a smoothie from Crush. Yeah. With burn. You know, when they charge you seven quid for a pint of carrot juice. Right, yeah, yeah. It's that feeling initially, Mm -hmm. but then it doesn't go away. It's still there. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. Um, So that one's called Live Now. This one has some of the good stuff in it. This is called The Social. Uh It's another one from Three Spirits. They're well named, to be fair. Livener and Social are good names for non-alcoholic spirits, I would say. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like you could you could you could order them with a straight face. That's what it is. A lot of it is just about that credibility, isn't it? Well, there's so much behind it. It's almost like perfume, isn't it? It's so yes, much yes. Like and branding yes. behind it. It's exactly sure. like yeah, that. Exactly yeah. that. This one has some of the good stuff in it. It's got lion's mane mushroom in it. Oh yeah. So this one has an active ingredient in it, um, and he describes it as the mood maker. You can drink this with ice. Uh, it suggests, or he suggests, on the rocks. Ideally, on the rocks. He says as he pours it straight into a glass at room temperature. <laughs> Oh, that's got a Bloody Mary type kick. That's got Christmas pudding vibes. But it does smell alcoholic. This is dirty. <laughs> Isn't it though? Yeah. Like this is this does feel like you've had a night out. Yeah, yeah. They've hit their mark well, but it tastes a bit like it's repeating on you. It's that, isn't it? Well, so this is the other thing with the with the spirits. Um, one of the reasons people think they're gonna get bigger and bigger within that non-alcoholic market is because people will start mixing them and creating cocktails. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of the the thought process behind it all. I, I'm slurring my words. Yeah, it does feel a bit like I'm drunk. Yeah. Why? It's Are we we're, drinking? <laughs> it's because we're abusing our bodies. Maybe. Like, even though I'm sure it's full of healthy, beneficial stuff. Yeah, but no, but it's there also is a, a mix of stuff that you probably shouldn't drink in combination quickly, and that's what we've done. So it it's is that really weird. Like, yeah. I do have a slight weird, drunky feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That is really weird. The last one, it's another three-spirit one, but this one here is a replacement for... Um, Whiskey. The last time I was sick through alcohol, it was whiskey. Was it? Yeah. Oh, here we go then. Oh, God. Now, I, I said, I, w- I want to create a, a cocktail of my own, my own non-alcoholic drink. What would you recommend? So this is Nightcap. This one has uh, strong ginger hints in it. As do you. So he said, if you're going to create a cocktail with it, all I'd, all I'd advise is to keep it as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. One of the flavours he recommended with it is orange. Now, I have tested this. I know you always are a bit like, have you already tried this? Have you tested this? I have yeah. made this drink. Okay. The memory of carrot tea still lingers strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if this is actually going to be pleasant to drink, I'm not just going to needlessly be, you know, yeah. uh, cynical. I'm excited to try your new concoction. Okay. Let's make you one of these. Now, it's basically a measure of this, which is roughly 50 mil. Yeah. I'm doing. Which I don't, I don't know what that is by eye. What's that finger? Don't know in these glasses. You, 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 go on, you pour. I reckon that's better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you've now done too much. Yeah, shot in a bit. It's a double shot of that. Yeah, yes. yeah, fine. Yeah. Double uh-huh. shot of that. Yeah. Which is the uh, nightcap. Uh-huh. Where's my orange juice? And then you're going to do it e- equal split orange juice fizzy water. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So I'll do the orange juice. Look, I'm going to I'm going to pretend 
I am an actual cocktail person. Yeah, he's shaking a mini orange juice he bought from Brett around the corner. <laughs> like he's Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly that. He's pouring it straight into his lap hey, while he's cradling in the glass. That's what he does in that film, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, equal measure again of uh, fizzy water to the orange juice. Yes. There we go. Okay, so we've got a fizzy orange juice with a shot of ginger in it, essentially. <laughs> Now, basically look, Ollie the art of making cocktails is to make it seem more elaborate than it actually is sorry you yeah. don't go to the bar and go yeah it's just a fucking martini with a bit of water in it there you go, there you go. in an ideal world would you have shaken this or do you just pour it straight because you have just poured it straight with no ice uh, not over ice because I don't have any ice in my hand I suddenly feel like I'm camping with you you know that thing where people are making a cup of tea in the morning so at six in the morning it's freezing cold outside and they're pretending they're having a good time they've got the trangia going yeah. that's the vibe I imagine if this was actually booze like I'm just I'm pouring so huge measures and just necking it. It'd be amazing. I do feel slightly pissed. It's really weird. Anyway, uh, yeah, cheers. Cheers. Okay. What I would say for it is that if I'd gone to Pret and instead of buying that mini orange juice, they charged me a pound extra for one that had a shot of ginger in it. Mm. If I had this, I would not be asking for my money back. Uh, well, there we go. It's palatable. That's all I can ask for. But are you getting it's that not slight, boozy? Are you getting that slight hit of ginger? I'm not. I'm not. Uh, yeah, ginger, yes, but not booze. This tastes like an orange juice with a shot of ginger in it. That is what it tastes like. It doesn't taste like a cocktail, does it? I feel like you're underwhelmed. No. Uh, uh, you, you. I'm whelmed, is what I am. I'm exactly as whelmed <laughs> as I would expect to be. I'm neither, you know, overly critical nor overly praiseful. I'm sorry. But you've you've risen to the challenge, I would say. Well, yeah, look, I mean, the thing is, is that the, you know, in, in looking into this, the, I mean, there's so much out there, you know, for non-alcoholic drinks that you can try. I think one of the things that surprised me more than anything is the price of things. Like, it is still yeah. expensive. Yeah. That is a surprise. But I think if you, you know, if you are putting on a party and you, you want to try something a little bit special, these are good things to try and maybe have in your drinks cabinet at home. And I applaud you for finding like startups as well and British companies and people that are doing it themselves. And that's nice. But in all honesty, for these things to cut through, they've got to basically be owned by the big alcohol companies, haven't they? Because they've got to be, it's got to be a universal brand that people understand. When you go to your pub Mm. that's owned by a chain, it's got to be next to the Smirnoff. You've got to say, I'll have the whatever. And the chance that that's going to be three spirits seems quite small, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, Dukes are in like 20 Michelin star restaurants and they're they're very much sort of aiming at that. They want to give a sort of a a good quality option for people who are spending decent money. But Three Spirit, I could see, sitting alongside a Captain Morgan. If you have a challenge to put to Ollie Peart to test out on this year's worth of shows that we have to cobble together for you guys, then go to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and fill out the feedback form. Ollie Peart, are you ready for your challenge for February? Oh, God. Yeah, there's another one. That's we it. don't stop, do we? We, we do not we stop. roll on the next challenge. Yeah, I'm ready now. I'm ready. It comes from Tanya in Croydon who says... I always feel lousy this time of year. Mm. I think we can all identify with that. Yeah, I mean, January and February are literally... I mean, they shouldn't exist. I always feel lousy this time of year, and I wondered how much my mood is down to SAD. Seasonal Affective Disorder. I believe that's what that stands yeah, for. I, yeah, I know of this. I'd like Ollie to look at the best new ways to combat the winter blues. Alcohol's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> uh, lamps is the thing that you always read about, isn't it, in, in magazines when they talk about SAD. And I wonder sometimes, like I say, I could do genuinely this time of year. I, I try not to be conscious of it, but what I notice is it gets to April, the sun comes out, yeah. and they think, ah, yes, that's what being alive feels like. 
that's why I felt unhappy for the last four months uh, and realised that I'm talking on an international show here mainly to people that are in the Northern Hemisphere and, and you know, in, in Western Europe. But at this time of year, it is just like hard to motivate yourself a lot, isn't it? And that lack of sunshine. I feel like I do have probably SAD, but I don't know if that's like a trendy diagnosis or whether it's a real thing. Uh, Ollie, it's been a pleasure as ever. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I feel pissed. <laughs> Coming up next, we'll be investigating another trend for this time of year, Veganuary. But first, it's time for our record of the month, and it's this from Tom Adele. It's called Black Friday. It's from the album of the same name, and it's out now. Wanna go hard. Wanna have fun. Wanna be happy. Could you show me how it's done? Look so pretty. Pretty like the sun. I could watch forever while you shine on everyone It's Black Friday in a black taxi You take my hand and hold it gently on the middle seat It's all in my head, it's all in my mind I'm so selfish, you're so kind Now, have you noticed an increasing amount of green logos being printed onto menus at this time of year? Uh, that is to cater to the hundreds of thousands of people doing Veganuary, adopting a plant-based diet for a month as a New Year's resolution. But what you may not know is that Veganuary is not just a hashtag, it is an organisation. It's a charity started from a kitchen table in York by married couple Jane Land and Matthew Glover. And also worth noting, this year is Veganuary's 10th birthday. So I went to York to meet them and find out how it all began. I started by asking Jane when and how she first gave up animal products. I went vegetarian in my early 20s. I'd watched some undercover footage on factory farms and was really horrified by what went on. Um, I went vegetarian overnight I knew one of the vegetarian in, in Grimsby. Family were relatively supportive. I was living back at home at the time, actually, so my mum was doing quite a lot of the cooking for me. I was very lucky in that respect. And then I decided that because it was such an important ethical part of my life and I'd recently become single, I thought the next partner I have, they've got to be vegetarian. Right. But... Being in Grimsby and knowing just one of the vegetarian, I thought... And you didn't well, fancy them? No, no, I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> I remember being in a, in a restaurant and ordering something, and, and I don't know how it came about, but I said to, to the waiter, where would I find another vegetarian? You know, Do you get anybody else asking for other options? Can you give me their phone number? And he said, oh, you know, for that sort of stuff, you just need to go online. There's bound to be something online. So I did, and there was vegetarian dating. And anyway, anyway it, it was quite slim pickings. <laughs> Time. There weren't Enter really Matthew. <laughs> Is that how you met? Yeah. You were on vegetarian dating. Yeah, I was a slim pickings. <laughs> it, it was a bit of a con, actually, was this website, because I was on vegan dating, not vegetarian <laughs> dating, because I wanted to find a nice vegan girl. Yeah. Anyway, we went, we went on a first date. I, I, I lived in Wakefield in West Yorkshire. It's like one and a half hours to get there, and is it going to be worth my while? And 
all of that. And uh, but we hit it off, didn't we? And uh, dated for six months or so. And then when it came to living together, I didn't want to live in Grimsby for obvious reasons, and Jane didn't want to live in Wakefield for obvious reasons. So we ended up uh, <laughs> compromising and living in York. And uh, we've been here ever since. And what about Matthew? How had he arrived at plant-based eating? His family background might surprise you. When I was a child, my family on my mother's side were butchers and, and meat traders. Uh, so I spent time in slaughterhouses and butcher shops at sort of primary school age. Wow. Now, with that being the family business, I, I don't feel like I'm particularly uh, worried about it too much and you know if I did put the meat to one side on my plate the family you know my parents would say you know eat the meat it's it's good for you you need it for nutrition and whatever so you don't tend to um you know we've all been brought up in the same society and I certainly was and then uh when I got to late 20s I just there was nothing specific that I read or I watched or any particular experience, but something just didn't feel right to me about eating meat. So I just overnight stopped and I became a vegetarian, but everything else in my life was the same. I would still wear leather shoes and eating dairy products and egg products was just, in fact, you eat more dairy and egg, you know, instead of having a ham yes. sandwich at lunchtime, Jeez. you would have a, a cheese sandwich. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then... When I was 38, I stumbled across a video and it was very much a clickbait advert on a website. And it said, the video the meat industry doesn't want you to see. And, you know, I just clicked on it and it was a 10 minute video. Paul McCartney was fronting it. Mm. Um, he's been vegetarian a long time. And it showed scenes of cruelty in the egg and the dairy industry that I hadn't really considered. I didn't. I hadn't thought about cows and how they need to be made pregnant every twelve months. The calves are taken away. You know, I just assumed. I think a lot of people do that. There's cows have just got this excess milk, and mm. they lovingly give it to us, and we see them in the fields, and everything's natural and normal. But um, that really started me thinking about actually, is that fair? Mm. Is that ethical to take the babies away ultimately? And so I was at the time running a double glazing company in Wakefield in West Yorkshire. Everybody around me was normal, let's say. You know, it was it was factory workers, it was plasterers and builders and, you know, window fitters. Big sausage roll contingent. Yeah, exactly. You know, bacon and egg sandwiches everybody would eat for the, their lunch and what have you. So and I overnight became this weird vegan guy. And I was the only... I'd never met a vegan before. Is that a combative thing to be on a building site? I can imagine you having to justify it a lot. In a way that even yeah. even then, vegetarianism probably was okay. Everyone understood what that meant. Oh, give him the cheese sandwich without the sausage. But yeah. if you're saying, oh, no, I don't want butter and I don't want cheese either and I can't have egg either. Yeah. You're pitting yourself against society in many respects. Nobody, people feel uncomfortable about standing out and... and you know, doing things differently to everybody else. And you certainly feel that. All vegans do. You know, it's like, why would you put yourself... We're, there's been surveys about, in society, who are the most disliked. And I think terrorists are the bottom and vegans are second bottom. <laughs> Traffic wardens 
traffic wardens are higher up than what vegans are. And, you know, all we do is eat more vegetables than everybody else. It's like, you know, so we don't do it lightly. Okay, so I'm getting a sense of what your dinner times were like, Jane, <laughs> when you used to bring out a cheese sandwich. How long did it take you to become vegan? About a week. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, let me answer that because on, on our third day, she had a, a, a margarita pizza with dairy cheese on it. And I was, you know, hoping to be snogging later on. And uh, I just said to her, like, I, I feel uncomfortable about the sort of contamination that we're going to get. Wow. I know. Is that real? Or I mean, did you really feel that? Yeah, I did really felt that. But you're not being ethically compromised by kissing no, someone I know, who's I tasted know. some dairy. Just, no, I, I don't realise it's not logical. You know, that was it. You went vegan after me grumbling about the snog. It wasn't. <laughs> just to clarify. Go on, please clarify. From your perspective. <laughs> it wasn't about the snog. I was, I was already vegan curious before I met Matthew. But again, it was just, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how yeah. this thing worked. And it was going to be too hard. And I didn't have the support of my family that just thought, are you going to die? Where are you going to get all your nutrients from? And at, at the time, you did have to do quite a bit of research into, well, where, yeah, where do I get my B12 from? Where do I get my calcium if I'm not? Because we've been told those things since you, you, you can remember, since you know about nutrition, right? And so you've got to relearn all those things. And as Jane and Matthew became ever more active vegans, they became ever keener to bring in other people. The question was... How? I think we'd both been trying to find our role in the movement. We'd been on marches, we'd done various bits of individual activism, but none of it felt big enough and we weren't really having a, an impact. And do you remember discussing this, Jane, you know, at home? Yeah, yeah, I do. We, you, yeah, you, you'd driven me to, I'd done a school talk, so that was another part of activism. I, I used to do it for Viva and I'd go to, and I would do a cooking demonstration. But, you know, I'm reaching a, a class full of young people and, yeah, you're you're planting those seeds. They've got more meals ahead of them, but, you know, they're not in charge of their own dinner plate. So mm. just not having those tangible numbers and same with leafleting. I, we used to go to universities and, and hand out thousands of leaflets, but just not knowing then what happens. Mm. Do any of them work? I don't know. And so that was, we just needed, a, we needed a thing, didn't we? To, that was that was measurable, that we could, that we could count the numbers, that we could engage with people. And Movember was... Yeah something that um, Matthew had already taken part in. So you'd actually grown a moustache to raise money for men's health? Exactly. And I really enjoyed taking part in that campaign for the month. It was fun. It was nice being uh, involved in something that lots of other men were doing. Um, and, you know, there was a fundraising aspect to it. So I started thinking, well, could we do something similar to Movember, but for this cause? So it was like, well, do you think we could get people to go vegan for a month? A lot of people say maybe vegetarian might be a better option. You know, it's an easier, it's a lower bar. But we were like, oh, I can't. Ethically, we don't feel that that is something that we could do. So we Because you'd be telling people eat more cheese yeah, and dairy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we, 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 we didn't feel comfortable about that, even though counterintuitively, you know, there was a risk we'd get less people signing up. But nevertheless, we decided to do it. Uh, as vegan and then it was just which is the best month and, and January just seemed to be the obvious one because of New Year's resolutions and Do you remember this conversation Jane? Yeah I just thought January's got to be the right month people thinking about New Year's resolutions um, making some ethical changes vegan January Veganuary 
and nobody had to grow a moustache. Who came up with that portmanteau? That was me, I think, originally, wasn't there. it? Uh, I do actually claim the credit for a lot of things that are not mine, but this one was. And I'm sort of in the background trying to fill in the details of, like, well, how is this going to work? And what's this going to be? Oh, you know, you're slowing me down. And I think that was that was how January was created that first year, wasn't it? Right, we need to launch this January. And I, I probably would have said, let's wait until the following January. No, the animals can't wait for us to do that. <laughs> when was it? To- when was the idea planted then? It would have been February 2012, and then I think we really started working on it properly in the summer of 2012. Okay, so you had six months. Yeah, six six months, yeah. But both working full-time, and then it was a case of getting together a website and a a team to make it work. I mean, in those early days, it was my Hotmail address, sending out Mm. the emails to people. And what did the emails say? It was just guidance, wasn't it, on, uh, you know, here's what to eat, here's how to read labels, here's the restaurants that... uh, easiest for you to to eat at and we had somebody helping us with the pr and another person helping us with social media social media but it just took off there was a few particular things that happened in that first year we got the daily mail wrote an article stating that jamie oliver was taking part which was incorrect but it helped us. Yeah. Um, and then Ocado put our logo on their website. They never asked us, and we never complained, because it was great. And then it gets legs. What does that feel like on a daily basis? Your adrenaline's flowing. You've got these ups and downs, because it's not all success. There's things that are going wrong at the same time, but it, it's you're just working really hard. I mean, we were... Our evenings and weekends disappeared. Most of the hard work is between Christmas and New Year, which is a lot of people are on holiday at that point in time, but it it, it became the worst time of the year for us almost because we're working so hard to try and get as many people as possible to sign up. We were living at Matthew's mum's at the time, so we'd moved in, turned her dining room into Veganuary HQ, and it was late at night, and suddenly my phone started beeping that the website had gone down but also text messages um from bing bing there was everything was binging wasn't it? what has happened and the website had crashed gone down so we were trying to get hold of the it team which was on an evening which was so that was hard work we discovered that kat von d who's a big vegan tattoo artist <laughs> i didn't know that was a subcategory <laughs> i didn't either but i'm just i'm very very fair with her now after she crashed our website she'd actually linked to our myths section so we had used to have a myth section on veganuary website so yeah cows need to be milk or they'll explode that yeah. kind of thing uh-huh. and she discovered it and decided to to say to her followers oh by the way if you're thinking about doing this thing this is a really good site mm-hmm. to however min- millions of followers that she had um, and this was out se- out season i think it was approaching was it november but obviously we hadn't what's you the- weren't ready no no we hadn't space yeah, the sure. server space of, for the website we just weren't expecting it so so everything crashed but did you have a list of influencers you wanted to target yeah, yeah, I think uh, from my my recollection, Martin Shaw, for example, was was one that I remember. Wendy Turner. Actually, this is one thing that we don't tell people very often. But Yuri Geller was our first celebrity. Okay. We thought that bending spoons and veganism combined just sounds v- even weirder. So we decided not to really promote that. I think sorry, it, Yuri. <laughs> sorry, yeah. No, but it um, makes sense. I mean, it's 
Yeah, so it's we, great to have every vegan influencer, but you don't want to necessarily be promoting an image of someone the public think of as eccentric. You're looking for people people can relate to. Exactly. A lot of it for me was tracking things on spreadsheets, checking my emails, getting that little adrenaline buzz, uh, dopamine hit. Mm. Every time we get a, an email that says somebody signed up, that feeling of, all right, that's one, two. How many have we got this? How many have we got today? How many signed up yesterday in comparison today? I'm seeing that it's starting to peak, you know. Um, can we keep this momentum going? That's what you're looking at all day long. And how do we, how do we get another increase mm. how do we get another 12 people 100 people you know because like in theory the most important day should be january the first if you're going to make a change like you say new year's resolution mm. but then in the nature of something viral i imagine it's more like january the 10th or 11th by the time people are sort of hearing about it for the first time because of the traction actually the big the biggest wave comes between boxing day and, and new Does year it? Mm. Yeah. people just stuffed full of meat exactly that yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're already thinking about it. And, and that's when we really hammer the social media ads and gives people time to get their head around it rather than, oh, it's the first I'm starting today. We would sort of prep them in, in the lead up to it. And we know what's your first breakfast going to be and, and how what milk you're going to use and, and all that, which would make starting on day one hard. But you're right about the media. The media does cotton onto it after into January. In fact, it would be quite frustrating to some extent where... A lot of the journalists uh, and, and TV would get back online around the third or fourth and yeah. start promoting it. Well, it's too late then, you know. Mm. Like so, then we took the decision that actually you can start Veganuary whenever you like. You can start on the fifth and go through to February the fifth, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if needed. You know, we we weren't going to be so rigid that you know, oh, you've missed the first of January, you're going to have to wait until next year. No, we're not like that. We want people to obviously try it. So, but we we generally tried to get as many people signed up before the first and then something else that we used to do as well I don't know if you remember this but you'd have google analytics up oh all the time <laughs> and that would most people watch tv in the evenings we would go to google <laughs> analytics yeah i'd be like jane jane there's a hundred people on our website actually it's gone up to 110 oh it's gone down to 90 and seeing where they've no. come from what they typed yeah. to get to you yeah. yeah and which part of the country which part of the world they're from what surprised you I think we expected a bigger bigger correlation between... Because we got in The Guardian that very first year and we were like, The Guardian article's gone out, right? Quick, get on Google Analytics. And I, I, I don't know, I'm fairly naive thinking that there's going to be a mass rush and it didn't... I mean, you noticed a difference, didn't you? There was a little spike. Yeah. It's so interesting because, like, if, if in the abstract, if you'd have asked someone in 2013, where would you need a campaign on veganism to be placed? You would answer, well, The Guardian and Ocado. That would be pretty good. And yet it sounds like a lot of the traction actually was coming from social media. It was, it was Facebook. Best £100 we'd ever spent. What was the ad? Try vegan this January. But conversion rate was about 20 or 30p at the time, which was mm. incredible. But what we would do is we, you can target the friends of vegans. Yes. So that's how, you know, we could, the 1% of, of the population that is closer to the people that are already vegan so that that would be how you would you would reach the flexitarians the vegetarians to get them involved we did have a, a lot of success in the early days with vegetarians because they're sort of halfway there anyway <laughs> if you like yeah um so you know the bar was a lot lower for somebody already vegetarian and was the support there from vegetarian and vegan groups did they like this campaign existing most did but it was also controversial with, with a lot of people back then. You'd get some vegans saying, 
you can't be vegan just for a month. Mm. We were like, well, we're just giving people that opportunity to try it. They would say you should be go vegan yes. this January yes. forever. Yeah. And we were like, no, we're going to ask people to try it for a month, see how they get on. Our logic was there's going to be a percentage of people that are going to find it easy. There's going to be a percentage of people that are going to enjoy it and they'll stick with it from February onwards. But some of the hardcore real abolitionist vegans mm. um, just felt that the strategy was wrong. I mean, we don't hear so much complaints about that anymore. I, th- I suppose because people are just used to veganuary. Well, also, I suppose there's just an obvious counter-argument from the experience you hear people have, which is meat eaters going vegan for January, then going back to a diet in February s- closer to what they used to eat, but just eating more plant-based meals. I mean, even that is converting people away from eating so much meat, and that's good for the environment, and it's obviously fewer animals being killed and manipulated and whatever. So, I mean, that's a win, isn't it, for you guys? If the alternative was they would never do that at all. That's the argument. So, obviously, I hope as a vegans, you want everyone to go vegan right now, immediately, and stay there forever. But realistically, of course, yeah, the, the by the end of the month, you know, it takes a, a while to break those habits. Four weeks is a good start doing that Mm. and so you are going to discover meals that you like you are going to try a plant milk that's quite tasty and i'm going to stick with that so we survey people and that's exactly what happens some people will go vegan but the majority of people reduce their consumption still to come jane and matthew on working with mcdonald's taking on piers morgan and how the organization outgrew them that's when the modern man returns after this Back to my conversation with Matthew and Jane now. Veganuary was snowballing, attracting ever more participants. But having invested 70 grand of their own in the venture, it also needed to earn some money back. The idea originally was that we would get people to donate, but it actually wasn't going to be to donate to us. It was to donate to... To charity. To charity, to, to, well, Viva, who was supporting us to get it launched, or, or the Vegan Society, or a vegan charity really and help the money come back into the movement but it, it just didn't work and we understand now why it didn't work why why didn't it work because people were already doing the thing that you asked them to do so that is my charitable gift to you i am going vegan yes and so and now you want me to give me money as well <laughs> ah you're asking me to do two things too much yeah but one of the things that, that I've, I've learned since then is there's a strategy around think slow and act fast take a long time to plan things out and then once you've got everything ready then you you kick on and, and move fast and that's that's a great way to launch things that's not how we launched the January <laughs> though we just we just got on with it is the point and um I don't think we really had a strategy around how we were going to make this self-sustainable. We just felt that let's get it out there, let's have some fun with it, and then we'll work out those details later. After that first campaign and we uh, exceeded our targets, I made the decision to go full time on it. We thought we could live off your wage. That was doable at the time. Um, We hired a marketing manager, so there was just two of us working on it full time. 
put a lot more money into it, redid the website, professionalised it as much as we could and had that full year, proper full year lead up and knowing what worked and what didn't, the learnings from that first campaign. Mm. But we did run out of money, it was 2015. And we were sort of newlyweds at that point in time. So it was, uh, you know, for Jane to, to marry me and then uh, as a result of this crazy idea, we'd run out of cash and, and living in my mum's spare bedroom. And no obvious way to get cash in either, for the reasons you said. It's a great idea, but how do you monetize that? Exactly. So the first thoughts were around the corporates because they they had started taking interest from the first year and we jumped on that immediately and started pitching the idea of Veganuary to them and also sponsorship. And so we got Naked on board, Naked Bars. They were our first, Mm -hmm. first major sponsor, but... I think it's fair to say that for the little sponsorship money that they were willing to give, they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) delivered to them (laughs) on a stick. But it was it was hard, wasn't it? It was really grueling what what they you know wanted from you in terms of the sponsorship deal and what you were able to give for for so little money. And that concept, that idea of working with brands, especially actually brands that are making food that isn't necessarily the healthiest. That's something that you guys have really leveraged as the years have gone by, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, when we first started, we were really thinking about individual diet change. How do we get one person doing it, two people doing it, you know, and then multiplying it from there? But we hadn't really thought through the impact that we might have in relation to, you know, the restaurant industry and supermarkets. And we were very much kicking against an open door. The supermarkets were very keen to hear from us. Restaurants as well. January's not a, a great month for restaurants generally. You know, mm. there's a rush up to Christmas, but January is people haven't got the money to spend. So we were offering them something new. We were going to chain restaurants and saying, look, we've got this campaign. It's going to potentially bring more people into your restaurant. All you've got to do is launch vegan options and and, and embrace this concept in January. And uh, yeah, I mean, virtually, well, most of the main chain restaurants over the years have, have taken part either to, to a, a medium extent or to a, a great extent, I would say. What was the breakthrough? Handmade Burger Company was the first and they said, we're gonna, well, we're going to run a voucher with you for the Veganuary. And towards the end of the month, they couldn't wait to get us in. Was it, well, I think the first week of February, they said, we want you in. in. Come on, we need, to, we need to have the meeting, have the wash-up meeting. And it was the best voucher redemption scheme they'd ever run through Veganuary. And we said, so oh. that was participants in Veganuary could go to that burger restaurant and get a vegan burger, presumably. It was 50, I think it was 50% off right. a vegan burger. So it was, it was more people that had actually signed up on our website, I think. And so we went to Yo Sushi and Las Iguanas, and some other chain restaurants in Europe. Wagamama Wag- have uh, been involved in, in, in the past as well, haven't they? Quite a lot. But even like Beef Eater and, uh, you know, some... Toby's Carvery. Toby's Carvery, which you wouldn't expect really to, to yeah. want to be involved. But what I would say is, and, and this is what restaurants don't necessarily understand is, quite often the vegan decides where everybody goes yes, to eat. yes. <laughs> Well, it's like having facilities for children, isn't it? Not to make too patronising a comparison, but it's like if there's a playground, you're more likely to go with the family. You know, if there's a vegan option, you're more likely to take a vegan. Yeah, so they they might be looking at figures and thinking, okay, well, the number of vegan options that are being sold are not that uh, significant. But 
if the vegans bringing everybody in, you've got to take it seriously. And I think that the really proactive, forward-thinking ch- chain restaurants have really caught on to that. Did you feel compromised about that, though? Because then you are, you know, but going back to that obvious challenge to what you do from vegetarian and vegan organisations of this shouldn't just be for a month, this should be a lifestyle change. There's an obvious criticism of, and you shouldn't be leading people to Toby Carvery. <laughs> it was a conundrum. We did discuss it. And... It was probably quite a quick discussion because, Matthew, you ended up going on to do a talk, didn't you, called why McDonald's, KFC and Unilever are not the enemy. Mm. Yeah, because in the movement, there is this perception that, you know, you've got to boycott McDonald's, you've got to boycott KFC, um, Unilever and Nestle and these big multinational CPG companies are ultimately evil. And my view is is a lot more nuanced than that. I think both of us and the Veganuary campaign as a whole is very pragmatic and we, we realise that, you know, change is going to take time and, you know, these uh, views within society are deep-rooted. So, you know, we can't, you know, m- most places don't have a vegan restaurant. So, you know, it, it makes so much sense to try to work with the... Um, the restaurants that are already there and just encourage them to just keep improving year after year and improving more plant-based options. And I think that's really where Veganuary's come into its own over the last 10 years is really understanding that and tapping into that and encouraging it and stimulating it and working with these organisations. I mean, the Greg's Vegan Sausage Roll was a genuine social media moment, wasn't it? It was huge. It was headline news. Piers Morgan lost his shit. He did. It? For days. <laughs> For days. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I'd love to, see, if I ever met Piers Morgan, I'd love to thank him for that because that really helped the campaign. It was 2016, I think, when he tweeted about us, didn't he? He said, mm. Beganuary, what kind of fresh hell is this? And we, we tweeted back and we had a bit of banter back and forth. But you know, you're doing something right when Piers Morgan disapproves. Mm. I think we we'd said didn't but we? also it tastes good i mean it actually does it's probably not the best quality item in the world and it's probably not the most healthy but if you go into greg's and you're going to get a pastry it tastes as good as the meat ones i mean it does help convert people doesn't it I, i've been in the queue at greg's and and heard people in front of me saying which are the hottest the meat ones or the vegan ones mm. and they've gone for whichever's the hottest greg's prior to this didn't do anything vegan at all. It was somewhere, you, you, vegans and vegetarians would not go into Greg's. But, you know, they've really embraced it, thankfully. In the decade Veganuary has been running, over two million people have signed up. But many more do Veganuary without ever visiting their website. So, by some estimates, it would be more like 20 million people that Matthew and Jane have inspired to try a plant-based diet. The meat industry itself is fighting back. So they created a February dairy campaign. February dairy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eat more dairy in February. Now, it, it flopped right, mainly because the vegan community sort of overtook the hashtags and the farming industry wasn't that bothered about it. So it ended up being um, an own goal, really, for them. There's been an orchestrated campaign that the meat industry has been working on over the last two or three years. For example, Beyond Meat, you know, they were doing incredibly well. That You know, the stock price was high, the, the IPO'd and doing great things. And 
the meat industry is really focused on the ultra processed side of it and this is not healthy mm. even though a beyond burger is way healthier than a meat based uh, burger they've really picked up on that in the uk there's been these consumer awareness campaigns picking on the b12 element which is more difficult to get on a, a vegan diet and saying look you can only get b12 in your diet by eating meat and you know promoting red meat even though a red meat is particularly when it's processed is world health organization has, has categorized it as a carcinogen, uh, carcinogen they're focusing on that and and promoting that to sort of counter this move towards plant-based but what they're missing is most people are missing out on fiber in the diet you know, we need more fiber, so we need to eat less meat and we need to eat more vegetables. So they're, they're missing out on that. There's a lot of vested interests in the background, obviously promoting their products. But despite the opposition, every year more people try going vegan all around the world. Our CEO is is German, based in Berlin, and she's built a team there. And uh, they were able to very successfully replicate what had happened in the UK in another in another country. We also are quite strong in Latin America, in Chile, in Argentina, really? in, in Mexico. Yeah. What's um, different? I mean, you know, what works here that doesn't there? Well, I think well, firstly it, it's cheaper to reach people. So from a what you know, when we're trying to get participant sign up numbers, then it makes sense to do some advertising in Latin America. But also, our understanding is that the people there are, 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 are maybe more open minded to it. Younger people generally are. So, if there's a higher proportion of the population there that's younger, then that that could be it. It's interesting that Latin America works because, and I'm sorry, this is such a basic point to make, but the pun doesn't. I was curious whether you need to be a country that uses the word January to really get it, just on a basic level. And that was early discussion that we had as well. Do you remember talking about that with the PR firm? They said, well, yeah, shouldn't you translate the word Veganuary? And... Veganvier and uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean the, we we did there was one uh, organisation in in was it Finland or Sweden Ice- that, uh, Iceland oh there was the Iceland campaign did they change the name they slightly? did they did change the name it might have been the PR person who said well Coca Cola doesn't change the name yeah. I was like okay yeah <laughs> we're living living large and yeah we're, we're pretty much stick with Veganuary as and uh, the English spelling uh, around the world now but I I seem to think Sweden did it Veganuary but with an I at the end rather than a Y okay last campaign we've had participants in every single country bar Vatican City and North Korea <laughs> <laughs> that's quite a combination <laughs> yes. I mean, the Pope taking part would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, you uh, said that well. you said that jokingly, but in all seriousness, it's not unthinkable, is it? I mean, you know, a president certainly could do it one day. It wouldn't seem weird. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the, the meat lobby is so strong that right. I think it would be politically difficult, unfortunately. It's the reality of the situation. You know, the farming lobby is... There, there's some research out recently. There's a thousand times more meat lobbyists than plant-based lobbyists. So we're not really being listened to at the moment. Do you feel, I mean, it's so interesting this, because it is, it's your baby, but also you've sort of taken a back seat on it, haven't mm. you, as a company? So it's just this thing that exists that you, that you birthed. Is that how it feels? It just, it outgrew us and we didn't have the skill set to take it to the next level. And so you hire people that are better than you. So <laughs> double glazing salesman and English teacher weren't going to cut it for growing this organisation into the charity that it is today. So we, we took that step. We got them on board. And it, 
oh god what just a relief or an absolute relief to to have christmas back <laughs> and a new year and see it and see it grow it's i think it's difficult sometimes to articulate it um because it's happened so gradually over many years um there's been these little mini peaks and sometimes you don't you don't step back and and fully look at it and appreciate it you know people have said to me you must be really surprised at how successful it was and i'm like well, no, I always thought it was going to be, you know, that's the entrepreneur in me. It's like, no, I expected it to be bigger by now than what it is, um, which is odd. But, you know, myself and Jane, I think we are quite proud of the fact that we've put some time and effort into it and created something. You know, the word veganuary is now in the dictionary. Mm. You know, we were on Gavin and Stacey's Christmas edition. You know, Coronation Street was one of the characters taking part in veganuary. EastEnders. We, EastEnders, yeah. Boris Johnson, I think, was asked a question about whether he was taking part of the game. All these things, it happens every year. And it is a bit overwhelming sometimes, but it is within all of us to take things into our own hands. If you're unsatisfied with the way the world is, you can do something about it and you can make a difference as an individual. Matthew Glover and Jane Land. You can find out more about going vegan this January, including recipes and nutrition tips, at veganuary.com. Up next, your sex and relationships questions. Alex Fox has some advice for the parent of a trans teen. That's the foxhole. After this. New year, new mind and body, new life, new sex life. It's The Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hey, Ollie. What are you looking forward to looking ahead to another 12 months of foxholing? Well, like a lot of people, at this point in the year, I make my wish lists. Yeah. And I also review all of my pictures and ideas that I've collected from the previous year and decide which of them I haven't nailed yet. So Um, these are topics you want to cover on the show? These are just the things that have piqued my interest. One of them is the idea of whether you can train yourself to lucidly wet dream on demand. Basically hacking your sleep to make it more sexy. Did you hear that story last year about the chess champion who was alleged to have cheated by having uh, a uh, sex yeah. toy up his ass? The anal that, probe. But yeah, so I thought I would use different sex toys that are remote controlled to see whether I could cheat at various pub quizzes. Okay. Are dog sperm counts dropping? Another one I want to look into is male breastfeeding. What? Well, there's a drug called um, Domperidone, not the same as Don Perignon. <laughs> Make sure you get the order at the bar correct. Um, <laughs> that apparently, in, at the right level, can induce you to uh, to make breast milk as a man. You also have to use a nipple stimulator because men's nips don't respond in the same way to a suckling baby as, as women's do. Um, but some men are apparently contemplating using this drug in the these kits to essentially give their female partners a night off from breastfeeding the baby. I mean, that is fascinating, but you have just told me everything I would want to know about that. Oh, no, I I have way more questions. I I don't want to do 18 (laughs) minutes on that. But if you're listening and you do have a question for Alex about anything to do with your sex life, with relationships, she's here all year, folks. Uh, Head to our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and fill out the feedback form. Alex, are you ready for your first listener question of 2024? I am, absolutely. The question comes from Hannah who says, Alex, my stepchild has recently come out as a trans girl. 
She is 15. Her girlfriend is another trans girl who attends her all-boys school. Oh, this sounds like a pitch for a sitcom. (laughs) We're so happy they found each other. They are cute and loving. We've bought our daughter some condoms and have left them for her to use. They are disappearing fast. And her mum has always been very open about sex and body parts, etc. So I feel like we've done some very good sex-positive slash safe-sex groundwork. My question is... Is there anything about young trans people's experience of sex that I just don't know that I don't know but should? You know, when I lived in Brooklyn uh, a year ago now, um, there was an artist there who I loved called Stephen Powers who Mm. was very much inspired by sign writing and graffiti uh, and made these beautiful, large-scale paintings that often incorporated statements. And one of them that I really adored said, invest in love for the best returns. This message reminds me of that because it's so infused with love. I'm so glad that this person has written to us because I do think that they need to invest that love really carefully to make sure that all their wonderful intentions for their stepchild, their stepdaughter here, come to fruition in the best of ways because this this is quite a sensitive scenario that we have here. Totally. I mean, it, to be honest, if it was anyone under 16 talking about having sex at all, we'd treat that question carefully in the knowledge that under 16-year-olds do have sex and parents need advice, but the general advice is don't, right? And then you've got this extra thing that, you know, you're talking about a trans girl whose girlfriend is a trans girl in an all-male environment. So, I mean, yes, I think it's a given that we have to be careful here, but there's clearly advice that's needed. We have two 15-year-olds here. The age of consent in England and Wales, which I'm I'm presuming is where these people are from, is 16. And I'm also presuming that if condoms are disappearing, something is happening with them. God, who knows? They might be filling them with baked beans and throwing them out of the the, the window (laughs) of a 13-storey building. I don't know. But it sounds like something sexual is happening. And officially, according to the law regardless of your sex, your gender or your sexual orientation, it's actually illegal to do that. Mm -hmm. But as you also very wisely said, Ollie, it still happens. And the reason the law is there is primarily to protect young people. The police don't want to make a fuss if nobody is at risk. The Crown Prosecution Service are not going to press charges against two 15-year-olds unless they absolutely believe that there is good reason to do so. So if everything happening is consensual and happy, hopefully everything will be A-OK. But actually that does in itself just bring about another taboo, which is the parent getting involved to help them along too much is tricky, isn't it? Because yes, absolutely, if two 15-year-olds are doing their own thing, that's one thing. If the parent's in any way encouraging them or facilitating them, that's problematic. I think giving your child access to decent information about sex and providing them with whatever they need to make sensible, safer decisions, Mm. that's really good parenting. I don't want to scaremonger, but these are also two young trans people. We know that, unfortunately, sometimes people do love to stick their freaking oar in when it comes to young trans people, don't they? Mm-hmm. And some some folks, either with genuine concerns about, quote-unquote, protecting children or who are using that phrase uh, as, a, <laughs> as a smokescreen for other intentions, they might want to make problems if they know that two 15-year-olds are potentially physically involved. 
there's a real difficult situation here, isn't there? Because you want to, you want your your child, your trans child, to feel proud of their identity, and you want to support them in responsibly and excitingly exploring their body in relationships, especially as they're doing so so sensibly. And you don't want to shame them for that. But I would like to maybe gently suggest that a conversation about being discreet about who you share this information with might be sensible here. My priority is absolutely that this young person has the best life possible and lives their 15-year-old self's life as unencumbered by unpleasant interruptions as possible. Mm. If the wrong person hears this... I, I just don't want that trouble to come their way. Okay, so like I say, all of that well worth saying, but let's take it as a given and deal with the question directly. Is there anything about young trans people's experience of sex that I just don't know that I don't know? Okay, well, straight off the bat, you've got two 15-year-olds in 2024. They are likely to have mobile phones. It's really likely that they're familiar with the idea of exchanging sexts or nude selfies or shooting videos of that type Mm. it's really really important that they know that it is illegal to show or distribute a sexual photo of a child under any circumstances even if you are that child yep and loads of people do not realize this this includes photos videos any kind of footage made by young people themselves so something that to really underline if you want to look after um, your teenage child is to ask them please to refrain from that one thing. Mm. Do not exchange photos or, or sexual videos of yourself. And again, the reason behind that law isn't really so that your partner doesn't see it. It's that once you've got a digital document, who knows whose hands it might fall into. That's the sensible justification for that being the law, isn't it? Exactly. It is not It is designed to protect rather than to persecute. Again, though, and I'm really trying not to be all scaremongering to this young trans person, but... We know how easily material falls into the hands of people it wasn't intended for, especially in environments where lots of teens are gossiping and intrigued about things. I can imagine a scenario in which other young people at this all-boys school, for example, might be particularly curious about what sexual activity between two trans girls looks like. So there might be more incentive for them to try and get their hands on that material or to gossip about it. In the worst case scenario, there might also be a bullying uh, element there. It, there are so many good reasons for these young trans kids not to do that. However, young people do love to do the, the things that they have been told not to. And when you're in a, an exciting relationship with somebody else, you always imagine that you're going to be insulated against the worst, don't you? Mm. So I would make it clear to this child that um, if something does go wrong or they do make a mistake, they can always come to you and you'll figure it out together. You want to put them off doing the wrong thing without putting them off coming to you if the wrong thing happens to happen. What seems to be motivating this question from Hannah, it seems to me, is trying to equip herself with knowing what to say if and when this stepchild comes to her and says, I'm having a problem, this is difficult for me, Here's a thing that I'm being faced with. What else are the kind of things you should be preparing some language about? Well, 
I chatted to someone who's much more of an expert in this very specific subject than I am, and that is the wonderful Dee Whitnell. Um, They are a trans activist. Uh, They are trans non-binary themselves. They're an accredited sex educator. They're founder of the Trans Kids Deserve to Grow Up Solidarity Campaign, and also they're an ex-teacher. So Dee is super, super qualified to talk about this exact scenario. Uh, One of the things that Dee said is to bear in mind as a parent, as the step-parent, it is so lovely that Hannah is trying to be supportive and enthusiastic about her daughter's relationship. But there can be a fine line between enthusiasm and endorsement and accidental pressure. Mm. At the moment, it does sound like this relationship between these two trans girls is a wonderful thing. But there's a chance that perhaps as two trans girls in an all-boys school, those shared identities are what brought them together. Mm. And they're doubtless going to have lots of things in common. But you might find, further down the line, that actually they're not that compatible as girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe there are other outlooks on life that they don't share. So you have to bear in mind that Um, And I'm not trying to uh, cast shade or sully the the validity and the the genuine nature of this relationship now, but it's teenagers. Mm -hmm. It might change. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you have been super, super enthusiastic about this girlfriend, Mm. your child might find it really hard to then come to you and say, we're not together anymore or actually something's happened that I have questions or concerns about or they've done something that's upset me. So it's really good to keep the door open to maybe hearing some of the more negative or questioning sides Mm -hmm. of that relationship. The other thing that Dee brought up is that if two trans queer kids are united in a relationship and kind of feel like they're the only ones who will ever understand each other and that that their partner, their, their girlfriend, is the only one who's ever going to really grasp what it means to see the world through their eyes, they can actually become a little isolated. Mm. And that beautiful thing that Hannah is so enthusiastic about can accidentally become a little toxic. What seems lovely can end up seeming lonely if you place too much emphasis on it being the biggest thing in their lives. Um, We haven't spoken much about the potential sex itself, though. Dee said it's really brilliant that the family are making condoms available. They did, though, make the brilliant point that this 15-year-old is soon going to become a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old. They aren't always going to want to rely on their parents for their contraceptive needs. So actually now might be a really good time to start learning together where your daughter might be able to get contraception for herself. Um, seek out someone, uh, seek out an organisation who understands the specific needs of trans youth. Um, bear in mind that maybe her girlfriend now or partners in the future might not have such understanding families supplying contraception down the line. So working out where to get it independently is, is a really good thing. What else did Dee say? Dee mentioned the potential for dysphoria. This can kind of happen to some degree or another to a lot of teenagers. Mm. You can feel um, like you're not at home in your own body. But particularly with trans individuals, that feeling that 
their genitals are not the ones that they feel that they should have, perhaps, and that's not always the case for all trans people or, or trans youth, or that their, their chests maybe aren't right as a trans girl. Maybe this young person uh, or her girlfriend uh, would like more of a chest, you know, and, uh, and are dreaming of the day when they, when they can do that. Mm. We don't know. And those feelings, as I say, may change. Sometimes they might crop up during physical activity with a partner. And actually, I guess, physical activity generally. Like, I mean, because yeah, I, I, sure. I was listening to what you were saying, I think it was all very well knowing that they might be prone to dysphoria, but then so what? That's not a strategy, is it? That's an awareness. What do you do with that information? Good point. Well, as well as talking about the dysphoria itself, you can help your child to navigate how to deal with that if it comes up in different situations, including in intimate moments with a partner. Uh, and as Dee said, um, a big part of that is talking in a nuanced, constructive way about consent. Um, knowing how to tell your partner, uh, hey, I really enjoyed doing X last week, but this week I'm feeling uncomfortable in my body. I don't want to do that. Mm. Or, hey, I imagined that this thing that we were doing would feel really good to me, but actually it's freaking me out because my groin feels weird or I don't like you touching my chest in that way. Mm. Talking with your child about how to recognise those feelings and how to express them in a way that you feel comfortable with and that's clear about your boundaries, but that also hopefully is a positive rather than a deeply uncomfortable experience with, uh, with a girlfriend, it's, it's a great thing to do. Um, the final thing that I would encourage Hannah to consider is that I think she probably has already guessed that sex for her trans daughter might look really different to what we think of sex as between two cisgender people. But it also might not look what she like she imagines trans sex to be. The provision of condoms suggests to me mm. that there is an assumption of penetration, some sort of penetration going mm. on. Um, and if that's what these two trans girls want to do with the proviso of what we said about age, then that's fine. But sex can mean so many other things. It doesn't have to incorporate anything. There's also, I suspect, the possibility that because she's so keen, Hannah, to be seen to be supportive and indeed enthusiastic about this relationship, she is discounting the scepticism that some people might feel that any 15-year-old coming out as anything might not change their mind. She is 15. I mean, there's a possibility, isn't there, that she's experimenting? Well, first of all, I'd say teenage experimentation is totally valid. That's what you're supposed to do as a teenager. I think Hannah's stepdaughter knows more about her identity than anybody else does and her feelings than anybody else does at this point. I think Hannah and the extended family, from what she has shared in her message to us, sounds like she is being a responsible and supportive parent as much as and as much as anybody can know what their child is going to be in the future, is trying to deal with the now mm -hmm. in a sensible, safe and, uh, and supportive way. We don't know what any teenager is going to do or be. Hearing them and what they express to us now, accepting that for what, what it is in the moment and working to keep them emotionally and physically safe is the best we can do and the best approach. 
yes, there's a chance that this trans child may decide they're not trans in the future, although I'm absolutely not suggesting that I think that is in any way uh, likely or typical. No, well, neither am I. No. Um, but, but they're 15, but really, so, it, you know, that shouldn't change her approach to being that supportive, should, if that's what you're that saying. But that shouldn't yeah. change our, the approach to being supportive now. Yeah. 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 Okay, um, if you have a question of sex or relationships for Alex to answer in a future edition of the show, what do you need to do with it? Head on over to Modern Man. My God, I hope that you know that it contains two ends by this point. (laughs) Uh, And hit feedback. Another great reason to go to the website is that I always list loads of brilliant resources for every episode of The Foxhole. And I've popped some down for Hannah and anybody in a similar situation to her for this one too. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It's Andy Lang in Kent, who says, Ollie, I loved the Skillathon. Can you please accordingly up my beer money contribution to £6 a month? Andy, it's done. Just another three months to go and we can afford a bottle of Murray. <laughs> is my ambassador for Kent taken, he asks. If it is, could I nominate myself for Sittingbourne instead? Uh, well, Andy, Kent isn't taken as such, but Kings Hill in Kent is. So um, I'll, I'll give you Sittingbourne and now pronounce you my ambassador for Sittingbourne. Godspeed. Uh, that's it for now. Our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on February the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.